Hi, I'm Tim Penketh, founder and CEO of thefutureeconomy.ca. Welcome to our podcast. Join me in conversation with the Canadian business leaders, policymakers, entrepreneurs, academics, and more who are shaping Canada's future economy. We'll explore their vision for Canada's future and what we need to do now to get there. Today, I'm joined by Tabitha Bull. She's the president and CEO of the Canadian Council for Aboriginal Business. Tabitha was part of the diverse Indigenous team that put together the National Indigenous Economic Strategy. That strategy launched a few months ago, so I wanted to speak to Tabitha about implementation. We talked about the strategy and its goals, how those goals will uplift Indigenous people and businesses, and importantly, what has to be done now and by who to ensure the strategy's proper implementation going forward. Listen on for more insights on one of Canada's most pressing issues, Indigenous economic reconciliation. Enjoy. Oni, Tabitha Indigenous, Nipissing Indigenous, Dodem. Hello, I am Tabitha Bull, President and CEO of Canadian Council for Aboriginal Business. Well, Tabitha, uh, thank you so much for taking the time to, to speak with me and to the FutureEconomy.ca's audience. Really a pleasure to, to be with you and to discuss actually a super important topic for, for Canada's future economy. Yeah, it's a real pleasure to be here. Thank you. Great. Uh, let's get right into it. Um, I want us to speak about the National Indigenous Economic Strategy, it's, uh, or the NIES. Uh, it's a strategy that was launched a few months ago already now. Mm-hmm. Um, so what I'd like to focus on is a bit of the, the implementation and where are we at now and what are the next steps, which is obviously always crucial. Um, so, first of all, just as a general intro, you, uh, CCAB, and other Indigenous organizations have, have been pushing for a strategy like this one for a while now. Um, so, what are the strategy's main areas of focus and its priorities, and why do you think it was important for such a strategy like this one to, to be out there and to, to have in the Canadian conversation? Yeah, thanks. So, you know, it's really important that we're having this conversation, even though the strategy has been out for some time. One thing that we really want to ensure is that the conversation continues and that we continue to talk about the strategy and talk about the calls to prosperity within the strategy and and that we keep it at the forefront of people's minds. So we're doing a lot of work on that to ensure that we're just keeping the conversation going. Um, We had an event actually in October in Vancouver, and it was really focused around the strategy and talking about how it came to be, but also how everybody can play a role in the implementation of it. Um, You know, when we all came together in December 2019, and then again in February 2020, we all, you can imagine, some facilitated session, we had post-it notes about what their priorities were all over this uh, boardroom in a hotel in Ottawa, and we really narrowed it down to four different pathways. Um, And the pathways each have a vision that describes what's the desired outcome of where we want the strategic statements and the actions to be. And those pathways came to people, lands, infrastructure, and finance. And within each of those pathways, there are these strategic statements. And then under the strategic statements, there are economic calls to prosperity. And this, you know, strategy took us uh, through COVID, um, a number of Zoom calls. I think we were meeting every other week. Uh, sometimes on the weekends, but really we wanted to ensure that they were tangible calls that people could really action. Uh, And that's the work that's going forward as really 
encouraging Canadians and government institutions to pick a call to prosperity and, and move forward on on that call and continue to choose calls and then make a commitment uh, towards them. Well, you mentioned those strategic pathways, the four being people, land, infrastructure and finance. Um, I'd like to, to dig into them and go through all four of them, if you don't mind. Sure. Um, starting with, with people is the one that you mentioned first. Obviously, people are at the heart of everything that we, we, we need to do and focus on to advance our future economy. Um, and I want to speak about Indigenous youth in particular, because they are the youngest and the fastest growing uh, demographic of, uh, of Canadians. Um, so obviously their empowerment and their success is absolutely crucial if we're speaking about Canada's future economy. Um, so what do you see as the current challenges that indigenous populations and especially their youth uh, face now that hinder their access uh, to, to, to uh, part, fully, full participation in the economy and their economic success? And what do you think are the kinds of actions that are needed and from who uh, to really empower those individuals to, to play as full an economic role as they can and succeed in the economic future of Canada? Yeah, it's a good question. I think when we think really about what is needed, um, you know, when we look forward to workplace, so both an inclusive workplace and ensuring that we look across organizations um, and institutions, academic institutions, to ensure that we're not just increasing the numbers of Indigenous employees, but that Indigenous employees feel included, that the um, workplace, workplace is really able to harness that human potential, that they feel that they have a voice in those uh, settings and that they feel included. Um, you know, part of that is we talk a lot about you have to see it to be it. So how do we, you know, really celebrate the mentors that are on leading the path in entrepreneurship or leading the path in corporate settings or in academic institutions and really hold up those Indigenous leaders as examples for Indigenous youth. But I think we have to be doing that in, you know, K to, K to grade eight. It's, it's much too late when you get to post-secondary to talk to a student about becoming an engineer or becoming a doctor or about what it means to be um, in a banking institution or what it means to be an entrepreneur. Because uh, you know, youth have to make decisions uh, early in their high school uh, to choose their high school credits about what they want to be. And there is some good work happening. Um, I actually sit on the Dean's Indigenous Advisory Council at uh, Queen's Engineering. There's lots of great work happening um, there to talk to youth about what does it mean to be an engineer? How can we support you to be an engineer? And lots of other colleges and institutions are doing that work as well. So I think one one key thing is that we really need to get to the youth when they're younger. Um, and then the other is to be able to find places for those leaders. So, you know, there's lots of discussion right now about having Indigenous leaders in executive roles and on boards. Um, and we, we need to do a lot of work to ensure that we have Indigenous leaders that are board ready, that can lead those corporations and ensure that those corporations are prioritizing ensuring that they have an, an inclusive workspace, but also so that we can continue to celebrate and, and see leaders in those spaces as well. You, you mentioned in that answer the educational institutions and some responsibilities that they have or, or uh, some leadership that they have to play within that. You also mentioned uh, industry and the corporate side of things. From your work um, and your exposure to, to organizations within those groups, 
have you seen uh, areas or, or instances of best practice that you think can be plucked out and implemented uh, across Canada in other arenas as well? So I definitely, you know, I, I would say to, to call out one prime example currently is Deloitte. Deloitte has um, really pushed forward. They've been very public about their reconciliation action plan for the past number of years. Um, and they've really pushed to hire Indigenous talent um, into their organization. And they've they've really grown that team uh, significantly. And we see, you know, really incredible Indigenous leaders wanting to work there because they believe in in what Deloitte is saying. You know, Deloitte's really putting the actions behind their words and committing to what they're saying and being very public about those commitments and also and also about education across their organization as well. Um, Deloitte also is part of our Progressive Aboriginal Relations Program at CCAB, which really goes along the line of their Reconciliation Action Plan. Um, so that's that's a real you know great example of ensuring that Indigenous leaders really have a voice in such a large, uh, well-respected organization um, as well. And I you know it's but I see corporations all the time coming looking for more Indigenous talent, and and there is definitely a gap there uh, in the ecosystem of how are we connecting Indigenous talent to these these opportunities in corporate Canada, and how are we making that connection too between um, academic institutions and corporations as well. I think I'll just go back to one barrier I think that we all are really familiar with and know exists and and that is uh, internet and access to high-speed internet and broadband in communities, particularly for youth and youth learning um, and remote learning as well. You know, there's a lot of adults who may not have, you know, who might have went to institu academic institutions um, when they were younger and not felt safe in them or not felt safe in the big city and didn't complete their degree. And um, if we can really get to that, you know, you can stay home and still complete your degree and, and still um, be in the workforce at large. Uh, I think that would do a, a big service for us to ensure that we're um, meeting the labor force and labor market goals within the strategy. Well, we, we definitely will get into infrastructure, which ties into what you're speaking about now. Um, before that, I want to maybe I'm going to sticker for sequence. Uh, you, you mentioned people land uh, first in your intro, so let's go into land. Um, if if you look at the NIES, the National Indigenous Economic Strategy, land the there are three principles basically that um, guide the land aspect of the strategy, which are sovereignty, mm -hmm. management, and stewardship, um, and it's sort of uh, indicates a, a, a holistic rethinking of indigenous land rights. So firstly, I wanted to ask how you describe the importance, both for the indigenous economy as a whole, but indigenous people as individuals as well, of having control uh, over their land. And what kind of economic opportunities you see stemming from this, this reorientation I think there's a few uh, that really stick out to me with respect to the land um, vision. And one is definitely as we look towards the implementation of UNDRIP in across Canada. Um, you know, it's, it's taken us quite some time to get clarity on what or to ensure that government provides clarity on what they believe duty to consult is and how we're still needing to close that gap um, as 
an understanding between Indigenous peoples and government. Um, and UNDRIP, uh, as we move forward to implementation, we really need to ensure that we have Indigenous people and Indigenous leaders included in that implementation plan, but we also need to make sure that it moves forward. And part of that is because it really is going to provide economic certainty for investors. So it's really great for Canadian economy in general, not just the Indigenous economy. The other part within the lands pathway is environmental stewardship. And as Indigenous people, we are the stewards of the land and the water here uh, on Turtle Island. And I think there's a benefit there again to both Indigenous people and to the Canadian economy and to corporations and infrastructure and development as we move forward. You know, if we can really tie and and use traditional knowledge and respect traditional knowledge when lands are being developed. Um, as a country, we will be better from an environment and climate change perspective. And for us to really listen to that knowledge of people who have been here long before um, the settlers came, uh, our pro the projects moving forward will be able to ensure that we're moving within international climate change forums and international climate change uh, commitments that have been made. We talk too about that from a perspective of um, early partnership, like those partnerships on projects, particularly infrastructure projects, particularly projects that cross many um, areas, um, is having those conversations and making those partnerships with communities first when it's going to impact land. Um, that also provides project certainty, but also ensures that that project is not going to be uh, disturbing plants and medicines and, and traditional hunting areas. Um, which will allow for a project to come to commercial operation much sooner. Do you see recognition of those benefits uh, coming from uh, the, the various industries and players that want to engage with uh, various projects that are located on Indigenous lands? Yeah, you, you know, I think too, um, not even, doesn't even have to be on, on reserve, you know, in any treaty or any area that could be impacting the treaty and traditional hunting rights. So not necessarily, you know, even on the community, but, but any area um, and any project that's happening across North America or across Canada. I think some of the benefit that we're going to see and we're going to see become even more important is as corporations are having to report on ESG, um, environment, sustainable and government goals, um, there's lots of conversation about where Indigenous fits within there, but if you're talking about sustainability and reporting on your sustainability platforms, um, you are going to definitely benefit from having an Indigenous partner on that project who's thinking about that and has been thinking about that and thinking about seven generations ahead and what the impact is going to be. And I think as we see more and more of that reporting becoming uh, a requirement, investors are very interested in that, shareholders are very interested in that. So there's definitely that benefit, uh, a business benefit as well that corporations are starting to understand. Well, let's move over to the next of the fourth uh, uh, pillars, which is infrastructure. Uh, you touched on the need for connectivity uh, in a, a little bit earlier. Mm -hmm. um, but I want to ask again, so what do you see as the most critical uh, infrastructure gaps or needs uh, that Canada's Indigenous communities uh, face today? And one of the key elements of the strategy is the establishment of uh, Indigenous institutions uh, that, that oversee infrastructure development. So I want to ask how you see them contributing to the development of the infrastructure necessary uh, to really drive uh, Indigenous economic growth forward? 
So one thing that's really important about this strategy uh, is that it was Indigenous led, that it was written by collectively a group of Indigenous leaders and then uh, reviewed by an additional large group of Indigenous leaders and organizations. And and to me and to the you know colleagues that I was able to share the pen with on this document, that was something that we were really clear about and really clear about the importance of. And that came out a lot in our conversations and definitely came out um, in the conversation around Indigenous-led institutions. So, you know, partially from a a data sovereignty. So how are we ensuring that that we own the data about our about our communities and about infrastructure in our communities and our community needs, that that is held within an Indigenous institution? Um, and, And as we think, too, about infrastructure in general within a community within communities, um, so incredibly important for us to be able to ensure that, you know, communities, Indigenous youth, Indigenous people just have the basic human rights of everyone else, the basic rights to clean water, the basic rights to um, food sovereignty. And and I would include uh, fast, high-speed internet within there as well. We definitely saw that during the pandemic and the impact that it had on communities, you know, and on widening the gap to not have availability for for broadband and high-speed internet. And I think, you know, that's just, you talk, we talk so much about equality and equity. It's not enough to say you're providing the same opportunity to Indigenous youth that you are other youth if, if Indigenous youth are struggling with just not having, you know, basic like basic human rights within, within their community. And for us to really be pushing that and understand what those needs are and make change on that, uh, we really all believe that those type of institutions need to be Indigenous-led. Well, Tabitha, the, the last of the four pillars in the strategy is finance. Um, so let's dive into that. I want to know how you see Canada's financial uh, and invest, investment systems uh, in terms of how they need to evolve to simulate Indigenous economic growth. And how mm-hmm. does procurement and trade tie into the whole strategy and its implementation going forward? Yeah, so I would say this is an area that, although it's something that continues to be the number one barrier for Indigenous businesses, like our members, when we're talking to them, is access to finance. I do feel it's something that we're moving forward on, that there is, you know, I'm optimistic about the people understanding that there's a need for change here. And that's that speaks to, like, our major financial institutions here in Canada, but also to um, the AFI's network across that across Canada, and, and also, you know, the Canadian government is really understanding and working with National Aboriginal Capital Corporation on trying to to manage this uh, need for capacity and need for financing. The other conversations that we're having right now, and, and that people are really interested in, is how do we invest in Indigenous businesses so that they can grow and scale up, but that they are able to um, continue their Indigenous identity. So how do we see a business that's Indigenous-led, Indigenous-owned, but gets investment to be able to scale to the next tier, uh, but still be Indigenous-owned and operated? And that's a question that we're continuing to have. You know, we don't want to... you don't want to limit an Indigenous business's success. And once they succeed to uh, an investment opportunity, they're no longer considered Indigenous. So we need to ensure that we're um, keeping those values within those businesses. And I should say business owners want to ensure that they're keeping those values within. So how do we find investment vehicles that will allow for that? And those are conversations that we're having also. 
And then, of course, procurement. Uh, procurement has been CCAB's uh, priority uh, along with our PAR program for the last five years. And that's because we really see that there's an incredible opportunity, um, both in corporate procurement commitments to Indigenous business and also um, federal, provincial, municipal governments. And we've seen some real progress here and we've seen the impact that that, that procurement can really have. Setting a procurement target, ensuring that you're including Indigenous businesses within your supply chain, and also you know, going further to ensuring that there's abil ability for those businesses to grow. And, and we've seen that imp impact. We've seen examples of a second generation, you know, that intergenerational wealth start to be rebuilt because corporations have made a commitment to, to purchase and support Indigenous business. And, um, you know, if we just look at the government of Canada, if they are able to meet their promised 5% procurement from Indigenous business, that that's a billion dollars into the Indigenous economy every year. And, and that has incredible ripple effect into the health and of communities, and we've we've seen examples of that. I think when speaking about procurement, the the, the benefits are um, easily understandable for the indigenous businesses and the indigenous communities that that they find themselves in. How would you pitch or describe the benefits for uh, the, the the larger corporations that are uh, that are uh, sourcing from uh, within the local community? So I think I think a few things. Uh, you know, the majority of Indigenous business are really focused on on their values from an environmental perspective, but also from a giving back to community, the social perspective of of sure, ensuring that um, their organization has some arm in which they're supporting either Indigenous education, Indigenous youth, the environment. And I think bringing those type of businesses into your supply chain helps to also improve your value and your purpose, you know, back to, back to ESG. But I think also when we think about the growth of Indigenous business in Canada right now, uh, you know, there's over 60,000 Indigenous businesses in Canada. We're growing nine times the rate of non-Indigenous business. And, and part of that, of course, is, is to go back to the, the fast growing population of Indigenous youth that, in this country we're seeing more and more entrepreneurs. So, so if you're not focusing and trying to ensure that you're including Indigenous business in your supply chain, you're missing out. You're missing out on an incredible swath of, uh, of businesses within the country. And the other is, again, on projects. You know, being able to hire a local business and a local Indigenous business can, can help both, uh, you know, help with morale with your Indigenous employees, um, lower the cost of that business, you know, without the travel and shipping that might be required, and just having that local knowledge around the project as well, to have someone working on your project, particularly if it's a resource project, um, that understands the the locality, that understands the land and understands the people. Um, we're seeing benefits that come from that as well. Well, I wanna I wanna shift over to the topic of economic reconciliation because um, the the National Indigenous Economic Strategy addresses that concept. Uh, and of course, its importance for uh, Indigenous uh, peoples and the Indigenous economy. So how would you personally define economic reconciliation and how do you describe that importance it has for our future? And from your perspective, where are we at on it? I know it's, it's a vague scale. There's no real uh, basis for measurement, but what's your sense? You know, as optimistic as I am and as... Um... You know, as positive I feel about our role at CCAB and my personally, like my job, 
um, I feel very optimistic every day about about where we're going uh, on economic reconciliation and, and what we're seeing. Uh, but I would say we're really still early in the journey, despite despite the vast gains that we've had seen and that we see on large projects like the Clearwater deal and large announcements like Hydro One in Ontario just made on equity positions for Indigenous communities. Um, you know, we were really excluded, purposely excluded from the economy uh, for decades. Um, and it's going to take a number of years for us to regain that generational wealth. It's going to take generations before we get to a point where where we really see that Indigenous communities are prospering. And as JP, my predecessor, used to always say, we need to get to a point where Indigenous people are managing wealth and not poverty. Um, it, I'm, you know, it doesn't, I still have hope. I still want a you know, believe that there's so much that we can do. I still love this work that we're doing and see improvements every day. So I wouldn't say because I think it's a long way off before we get there, that discourages me. I just think we need to be realistic about how long it's going to take to repair the damage that's been done. And what does that endpoint look like for you? Like, what are the main features or, or um, determinants of having uh, reached or achieved uh, economic reconciliation. How would you describe that? So really when Indigenous people and Indigenous businesses are equal, playing playing equally and have equal opportunity to be able to participate in Canada's economy. Um, there's still so many barriers that exist um, as described in the strategy and, and as really what the calls to prosperity are trying to overcome. Um, that, you know, we're going to take, it's going to take time to get there. But when, when we don't have to talk about why it's important to have an Indigenous business, when we don't have to talk about um, what's the benefit of ensuring that you're working with Indigenous partners, that's when we're going to be at that point of reconciliation. Well, I want to close off the, the, the interview portion of, uh, of this conversation um, with some very rapid calls to action. Um, so, if you have 10 to 20 uh, second uh, opportunity to, to, to shout out to anybody or any stakeholder you think is appropriate, uh, what would you urge them to do now on each of the four points of the strategy? So starting with Indigenous land, who would you address and what would you, uh, what would you call them to action on? So I would definitely address Minister Miller at Indigenous uh, in uh, I'll start that again. Um, so I would definitely address the government of Canada to ensure that they're resolving land claims. Um, I think in the past uh, little while, Minister Miller uh, has been doing a great job at that. We're seeing a lot of land claims being resolved, but um, that's wealth and economy that our communities aren't able to access right now. That really is rightfully theirs. And uh, we need to ensure that we're moving quickly on resolving the land claims across Canada. Okay, the next pillar is Indigenous people. Uh, who's the who and what would you want them to do right now? Um, here I would say the, the who is definitely academic institutions and I, I would want them to look at ways that they can ensure that they're thinking beyond the status quo to ensure that Indigenous youth have 
um, feel included in Indigenous institutions or Indigenous universities and colleges, um, but that we're also looking at ways to reach the students in community. And that, you know, that also means in urban centres um, like Toronto, where you have a high density of Indigenous youth in certain areas, how are we ensuring that um, that they feel that university and colleges is a place for them and that they feel that when they are there, um, they're included and they're able to to both be be a student and still be tied to their community and have a part of their community. Okay. Next one is Indigenous infrastructure. What needs to be done there? Uh, so I would say uh, infrastructure, we need to ensure that we're closing the gaps on um, infrastructure within communities. And that is, you know, my biggest priority there would be clean water and moving close closer and faster on eradicating uh, all of the water issues in community. Um, but also we need to look at the infrastructure for communities to be able to build economic development. So a number of communities um, you know, can't build manufacturing plants and can't take opportunities of manufacturing plants because their power grid isn't uh, substantial enough and doesn't have what's required for them to put in certain motors. And so some communities don't have three-phase uh, opportunity to go back to my engineering um, degree. But, you know, I, I met with a lot of communities. You had these great opportunities to bring in manufacturing and bring in economic development, but the, but their power system wasn't up to, to um, it wasn't at the opportunity that they could take a hold of. And that is something that I think we need to be looking beyond the things we see in the media, but really understanding what are the infrastructure gaps that are a barrier to economic development. Yeah, un unfortunately, water and power, well, we're still speaking about the basics. So we, yeah. we yeah. really need to move yeah. on that. Um, indigenous finance, uh, who has to do what on that one? So here I, I have to say procurement. Uh, you know, as we said, we, we really feel like this is such an incredible opportunity. And it's not about the key part is there. It's not about asking corporations to spend more money. It's not about asking government to spend more money or increase the tax base. Uh, it's really about just looking at the money you're spending and putting it towards Indigenous business. And that will have such a wide impact on the Indigenous economy and on the health and well-being of communities and Indigenous people. And then last uh, call to action, but definitely not least, economic reconciliation. Uh, which stakeholder has to do what right now to advance that? So here I'd, I'd say Corporate Canada. We've had a, you know, we've had a huge growth at CCAB in our membership um, from corporations, and that's uh, incredible to see and, and to witness. But every corporation in this country needs to be thinking about what they're doing for reconciliation, what they're doing to support Indigenous people, communities, and businesses. And, and that starts with education, uh, you know, education of yourself and education of your employees. Um, then we really need to see every corporation making a commitment and being public about those commitments and, and taking action. Well, Tabitha, we're at the end of it. Thank you so much for taking the time. Uh, I really appreciate that. And uh, I look forward to doing this again soon sometime. Yes, me too. Thanks so much. Thanks for joining us on the futureeconomy.ca's podcast. If you enjoyed the show, please subscribe to the podcast so you don't miss upcoming crucial conversations about our economic future. And please consider leaving a rating or review. Also, make sure to visit our website, thefutureeconomy.ca. For more in-depth content from the leaders shaping Canada's future economy, 
and sign up for our newsletter to be notified of new releases as soon as they're out. Finally, if you value what we do, tell a friend or two about us. We'd really appreciate the support. See you next time.